The letter of Yaakov, chapter 3. So if you're not there, turn there, verse 13. 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us to stick and that you, Father, are faithful even though we may be faithless from time to time. I thank you, Lord, for being a father who has never given up on me. You have stayed with me in times that I was not with you. You have been there in times that I have not. You have just been faithful. And Lord, I thank You that You continue to teach us and You continue to show us truth even when we aren't recognizing that Jesus is truth. And even when we stray from the depth of relationship that You've invited us to, even when we are not acknowledging You, at least with our hearts, those times in life when our hearts may even be far from You, You are still there. You have still been calling. You have still been faithful and patient. And and for that... We are eternally thankful. And Lord, we're thankful that You keep training us up. That You know, Lord, that the day is coming when we will be like You, for we will see You as You are. And and that, that lack sometimes, Father, of relationship on our part will be forgotten in eternity because we will be with You. And we long for those days, we truly do, Lord. And in our lives, when we pause long enough to consider those days ahead and the time that we will be with you and there will be no question of of our closeness, of our love, of our worship and praise of you. Father, those days are coming. And in these days, I just pray you would draw us near. Draw us near. For we long to be close to you. Holy Spirit, teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 tells us that the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. A little over 500 years later, we may actually have seen the successors of Daniel's agency entering the Holy Land. For in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And it has been suggested that perhaps those Magi, those wise men, actually came out of the history of Daniel himself. 
that Daniel is prefect, that Daniel working in the, in the uh, upper echelons of government in Babylon actually developed a school of wisdom. And of people who looked into the Hebrew Scriptures and were considering what they had to say and even what was said in the stars and, and so thus followed all of that by their learning were drawn to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus. It's a fascinating study and interesting to consider. But what I want you to think about this morning is the fact that there is a huge difference between wise men and wise guys. You know, a difference between magi and mafiosis. Or between sages and smarty pants. There are two different schools of wisdom. There are those who follow the star of Emmanuel. And those who live by the shrewdness of their instinct and intellect. Both are schools of wisdom. There are those who bring their gifts to Christ. And then there are those who spend their gifts on themselves. Two schools. And that's where the difference really lies, uh, other than how these types of wisdom will play themselves out in our lives. But the difference lies in where the training comes from, in the type of schooling. Yaakov began chapter 3 with a strong warning, interestingly, to would-be teachers. Not would-be teachers, but would-be teachers. He says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment or even a greater condemnation. And then in verse 6 he says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And we talked about the fact on Wednesday night that the tongue being a fire, more than anything else, it was a warning against false teaching. Not just bad language or brutality or slander or gossip or all these things that we normally would equate with the tongue being on fire. Really, it's a, it's a warning by Yaakov against false teaching in the church. Which is why he starts out with, let not many of you be teachers. And then continues with, the tongue is a fire. And we even talked about the fact that you have to basically do a little backburning to stop the fire with the fire that is in our bones. And that is the fire of the word of God. The fire of truth can stop the spread of the fire of false teaching. Well, that was Wednesday night. And if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to go back and listen. But what happens now is Yaakov, at the end of the chapter, begins to round it all out, not with teachers, but now with students. As he weighs out before us the value of these two very different schools of wisdom. Not different like Wazoo and the UW. Those are two different schools. You know, Cougars versus Huskies. You, you may have one that you ascribe more to. We, we have deep division in our eldership among these two schools. You know, just sit down with Steve Berenson and Glenn Mal for a few minutes. You see there is deep division here. <laughs> Between the crimson and the gray and the purple and the gold. That's not the kind of difference we're talking about here. <laughs> of the two kinds of schools that Yaakov compares, the reality is the school that you attend is the one that you will wear. And not like school colors or sweatshirts and ball caps, but in your very behavior. One of these schools of thought will be evident in your life, in my life, in how we interact with people, 
in how we think and how we engage in our life and our being and even ultimately in our eternity, the school we attend is going to have ultimate results. Now you might say, well, sounds weird to think that wisdom can be different. I mean, isn't wisdom just wisdom? I mean, if you've read the word wisdom in the Bible, and you have, it's, it's used 51 times. This is the word Sophia in the Greek. And every time Sophia shows up in the New Testament, it's wisdom. That's just how it's translated. But it could also be translated understanding, insight. It could be knowledge, experience, intellect, perspective. And the more you think about it, the more you realize you can learn experience from different schools. Right? I mean, you can gain understanding from a very demonic place or from a very heavenly place. You can get, you know, instinct, you can develop intellect in various different ways. The Bible says, really, it's one of two. Boiling it all down, you're either going to develop wisdom from below or from above. From earth or from heaven. It's either going to be grown naturally or it's going to be grown spiritually. And to be even more stark, it's either going to be demonic or it will be divine. It is an either or and not all this area in between of all this gray area and all this relativity. You are either going to be raised, I am either going to be raised on, learn from, develop wisdom from a demonic place or from a divine place. Well, that's what we're talking about this morning. And in verse 13 again, he says, who among you is wise and understanding? I like the question. We could throw that out there and then we all kind of look around at each other like, yeah, who is wise? (laughs) Who is understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So there's a hint as to your alma mater right there. Which school you attend. If it's shown in the gentleness of wisdom. Now now the word gentleness, he's going to connect gentleness to wisdom two times in this section. So we'll come back to it at the end. But just so you know right up front, gentleness is a strong word. In the Greek it's prautes. And this word can be defined, you've seen it define meekness as well. When Jesus says, I am meek, it's prautes. When he says, blessed are those meek, it's prautes. That that word isn't just, you know, Oscar milk toast, which is typically what you would think of when you say meek. No, gentleness here, and I speak especially to my brothers, gentleness, guys, man, that is something to aspire to. Because it is quiet strength. It's actually a horseman's word. Among the Greeks, it was used to describe a powerful steed standing still. You know, think about, is there anything more peaceful than than a portrait of a horse in a meadow just quietly feeding on the grass, standing there? And yet, horses are big beasts. They look lovely driving by. But when you're actually standing there face to face with one or when you have one breathe in your ear in the dark as you're walking home from the barn to your house on a Wednesday night. (laughs) As happened to me multiple times when we were in the barn. I hated that. I would go through the little gate at the Gilmore's and, and start walking through that path in utter darkness. And I knew Buck was out there somewhere. And you know what? I am convinced he knew I was coming. 
because he would station himself in a different place every week. Gentleness, that strength of a, of a horse. And yet the quietness and the peace that, that you often see when, when a horse is at rest. That's what the word describes. Strength is here. There is strength and wisdom. But it's quiet confidence. It's a gentleness. And as with everything in this letter, wisdom is manifested in behavior, which is why I love the fact that he goes to gentleness first. When he describes what this true wisdom from above, now he's going to change direction very quickly here in the next verse, but he starts with, hey, this is good. This wisdom is is gentle because wisdom is manifested in behavior. It always comes out in us. It always shows really where we go to school. Where we're getting our learning, where we're taking it in. Psalm 1, we read this last week. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of the sinners, or sit in the seat of the scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Side note, why is his delight in the law of the Lord? Because it is of the Lord. You see what I'm saying? His delight is not in the fact that he's reading words and has a good book to study. His delight is that it belongs to the Lord. That these words come from the Lord. That's why David loved the law so much. Because he could read it and seek to understand his Father and be in relationship with his God. Well, it says also, Psalm 1 verse 3, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season... And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Walk, stand, sit, delight, whatever he does, these are all actionable things in our lives, and they come from our school of wisdom. They come from our seat of learning, if you will. Where do you walk during the week? Where do you stand? Where do you find yourself sitting down? And what is your delight? Because that will tell the type of wisdom that you are developing. Wisdom is always seen for what it is, depending on where it goes. So verse 14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, I read all those verses together because this is one of the two schools of wisdom, and it's what I would call the school of hard knocks. School of hard knocks. 19th century German author and statesman, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. I like Wolfgang. My... um, father-in-law tells me that if Cheryl had been born a boy, that would have been her name, Wolfgang. (laughs) But Gerke, he, he sums up wisdom this way, or at least this kind of wisdom. He says, every school of thought is like a man who has talked to himself for a hundred years and is delighted with his own mind, however stupid it might be. That's the school of hard knocks. That's the school of self experience The school of wisdom that comes from what I am able to understand and achieve and attain and work through in this life, it is delight in the human mind. And Goethe says, even if it's utterly foolish, 
And so often delight in the human mind is just that. Delight in our intellect. In the things that we can understand and and what we can develop and how we process. Jesus put it this way. He said in Matthew 12.34, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Two schools of wisdom. And in the school of hard knocks, there are two primary mascots, if you will. There is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Verse 14. These are two determining factors of the school of hard knocks. Bitter jealousy. The Bible tells us, we just saw this back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Now there are two ways of reading that verse. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Immediately your mind might go to, well, I I don't want to come up short of God's grace. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, I don't want to come up short of extending God's grace. Because the very next thing he says is, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. We need to be a people who are about the grace of God to one another, not about planting bitter seeds. Not about defiling the body. And here's the thing about this mascot of bitter jealousy. He knows how to rile up a crowd. Bitterness and jealousy, it works that way. Bitterness begets bitterness. Jealousy spreads jealousy. And so where one is jealous in a fellowship, in a body, where one is bitter, that bitterness can splash, that jealousy can spread, and ultimately many are defiled. That was the point we made Wednesday night. Again, look back at verse 6 where it says, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. That's not just your body. That's the body of Christ. That's the entire church. His warning there against false teaching that defiles the body of Christ. And his warning here that this bitter jealousy, man, see that into any church fellowship, any body of believers, any community really, and it will just spread more and more. It becomes a root that grows. Now, the idea of this bitter root actually goes back about 3,500 years. If you look back at the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy 29, book 5 of Torah. So all the way back to the beginning of Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 14. Remember, as you're turning there, that there is a profound connection in the Scriptures of the Scriptures because this is all coming from the mind and the heart of God. From the Spirit of God. And so what he says in one place, there's always a tie-in somewhere else because it's all from the same source. So here in Deuteronomy 29, verse 14. This is a covenant that they were making in Moab. And verse 14 says, Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and those who are not with us here today. Well, guess who that would include? You and me. Yeah, because 
we weren't with them there that day, right? I'm pretty sure about that. For you know, verse 16, how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold which they had with them. So that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. See to it, again, the Hebrew writer says that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And here, Yaakov says, if you have jealousy, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Listen, bitterness like idolatry. Moses is speaking to the, to the people, and he's saying, idolatry is a poisonous root. And if we plant that seed today, or if our generation plants the seeds of idolatry, Moses says to the people 3,500 years ago, then that's going to take root, and it will show up in further generations. Same thing with bitterness itself and jealousy. Plant those seeds, and they will take root, and they will show up one generation after another after another. Bitterness is like idolatry. It infects entire families, entire fellowships, even whole communities. And guess where bitterness is learned? (laughs) The school of hard knocks. That's where it's developed. This school also, you can go back to Yaakov, this school educates for selfish ambition. So bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You see, the school of hard knocks, life learning is the street attitude of survival of the fittest. You get beat around enough, you start to realize, man, i got to rely on me and no one else. Because no one else is really going to be there for me except me. Self matters most. You know, fight for your rights when at all costs. That is self-destructive. Did you, did you read in the newspaper there was a lawyer this morning who was a champion of two things in his life, a champion of, of LGBT rights and then a champion of uh, global climate change and speaking against that and apparently this morning he lit himself on fire in a park and burned to death as a protest against climate change. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, amazing. That's where it goes. To the point where this, this man, so deceived in his own thinking, so wrapped up in the, the school of this world, that he committed suicide, and even in his suicide note said he did it to, to be a voice for climate change. I'm like... <laughs> I mean, that's just bizarre to me. I'm going to go out adding to my carbon footprint. I mean, anyway. Both of these traits, both of these traits, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, are expressed ultimately in a negative view of other people. And of others' opportunities and blessings. It's, It's those who say, well, why does he seem to always get the breaks? If that ever comes out of your mouth, careful, it's bitter jealousy, it's selfish ambition. I'm more qualified than she is for that position. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. I'm so much more deserving (laughs) than they are. Am I? 
Really? Are you? I think the better question is, wasn't Jesus more deserving? In fact, if, if, you, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, you can just listen to this, verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Can you look around this morning and just say, everyone here is more important than me? That there's no one here who I actually am a little more important. You know, I'm a little more valuable. We could take out that person and we'd all be fine. I don't mean take out like... I mean, let's not go to the extreme. I mean, we could ask someone to leave. No, okay, move on, Rick. Move on. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, you know what? If you're regarding everyone as more important than yourself, then you're going to spend your life looking out for their interests rather than your own. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You all know that. Many of you have heard that passage so many times. The question is, wasn't Jesus more deserving than that? Of course he was. But he didn't view even equality with God, who he is, a thing to be grasped. And so it helps me to realize that Jesus is the model of godly wisdom. He is the picture of heavenly wisdom. And, by the way, Jesus never spent a single day in attendance at the school of hard knocks. But wait a minute, wasn't Jesus a man of sorrows? And, I mean, if anyone experienced hard knocks, wouldn't you say Jesus did? Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Listen, I didn't say Jesus didn't experience hard knocks. Just that He didn't go to school there. He didn't learn by that. His wisdom wasn't based in His pain and His sorrow and the heaviness of the sin of the world on His shoulders. No, His wisdom comes from another place. It has to. For you see, looking a little further, the school of hard knocks, verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. You can get knowledge and acumen and intellect and perspective from an earthly, natural, and demonic place. It's the kind that comes of being being beat up and victimized and abused. You can learn from that and develop a mentality out of that and grow in your understanding of the world by those hard knocks. 
And yet the three descriptions that Yaakov gives here are stunning, earthly. This kind of wisdom is earthly or worldly, streetwise. It's what you get here. If you're not looking there, it's what you develop knowledge and education-wise from right here in chapter 4, verse 4. If you look over there, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, this is earthly, worldly wisdom. Do you want that? He also calls it demonic. That is wisdom that is not heavenly, wisdom that is not godly. It only comes from one other place. And it is demonic. Demons are players. They're smart. They're cunning. They're wily. You could say they're intelligent. They have a form of wisdom. It's an earthly wisdom. But it is wisdom nonetheless. And Satan is no idiot. Would that he was. (laughs) Wouldn't it make life a little easier if he was a bumbling fool? But he's not. He's incredibly shrewd. Ephesians 6.11, Paul says to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's a schemer. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So demonic wisdom is not stupidity. Oh, eternally speaking, yes, it is. It's foolish. But demonic wisdom can seem very sharp, very shrewd. Jesus even said the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light because it's a demonic wisdom. Satan's a schemer. He's conniving. He's plotting. That's his kind of wisdom. But note this. He uses another word here. Right in the middle he says, but it is also natural. Now, earthly starts to sound a little grimy. Demonic sounds horrifying. Natural doesn't sound so bad. He's got natural wisdom. She's just naturally wise. Hey, we buy all natural food. We actually spend more money now for natural food than for processed. We buy organic. That's great. The word natural here is sukikos. It's where we get psyche, psychology, psychotic. Sukikos literally means out of the soul. When you see the natural man in the scriptures, it's the soulish man. It's the person who is living out of their intellect. It is soul-level intellect. It denies the spirit. Natural soul wisdom is the stuff of greatest deception, which is why it's right here in the middle of earthly and demonic. Because it is so self-deceiving. By the way, uh, there's a school of natural wisdom. An actual school of natural wisdom. That's the name of the school. It's in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You can attend there if you'd like to. The School of Natural Wisdom. Of course, it offers classes in channeling, mediumship, and shamanism. That's natural wisdom. That's soulish wisdom. It's a wisdom that leads right back to demonic. Natural soul wisdom. Why is it so deceptive? Because that kind of wisdom is in direct opposition to God Himself. Why do you say that? Jesus said in John 4.24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit 
and in truth, not in soul and of earth. Spirit and truth. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. You know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And here is the greatest problem with the natural or the soulish person. Listen to how Paul describes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom. I would call that the school of hard knocks, the school of earthly understanding and education, not in things taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual with spiritual. He says, natural man, the soulish man, the sukikos, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. You could put it this way. He who is spiritual understands from a spiritual perspective all things, and yet he's not understood by those who are soulish, by this world. And then he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Back and forth, back and forth, Paul goes between the natural man and the spiritual man. Between the wise man and the wise guy. Between those who are schooled in the school of heavenly wisdom and those who are of the school of hard knocks. The natural man graduates summa cum laude from the school of hard knocks. Learns everything that is to be learned here of the human intellect and of earthly things and it's demonic. And again, it is true that Jesus went through hard knocks. He was mistreated, he was beaten, and he was abused. In fact, Isaiah 52.14 says, His appearance was marred more than any man and his form than the sons of men. But I told you, he didn't attend the school of hard knocks. And I know that because all of the beating and brutality of Jesus' life never defined him. It never played out in his treatment of other people. And how he thought. And how he lived and what he taught. You never get even an inkling of earthly wisdom there. It's all heavenly, divine, spiritual. And by the way, the school of hard knocks, you may have, you may have been in those corridors, but it does not have to define you. It doesn't have to be where your education comes from. It doesn't have to be the basis of your life. Just because you've been knocked around, beaten down, or even deeply wounded in this world, it doesn't mean you have to go to school there. Or learn from it. There's a better school. You see, while the natural man graduates summa cum laude from the school of hard knocks, the spiritual man graduates, thank you Lord, (laughs) from the school of heavenly wisdom. See, that's what we said. When I graduated college, Cheryl and I went to college in Texas, and she graduated, don't tell her I told you this, but she graduated summa cum laude from our undergraduate school. We competed all the way through undergrad to try and get the better. She, she won. I just graduated. Thank you, Laud. You know. 
bringing us to the school of heavenly wisdom. School of hard knocks, you can study there, you can learn there, you can live by that, or you can attend the school of heavenly wisdom, and it completely wipes out all of that previous learning, and it makes it spiritual and valuable and eternal. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. Please don't take that as a little list and tack it aside and move on quickly. Listen to what he just said. This is the school that is from above. This is the school of heavenly wisdom. And he gives eight attributes of wisdom from above. And as you study and think about these, oh, I want this. This is how I want to live and think and move. And he, in these eight attributes, he gives the first as preeminent. Notice this. He says the wisdom from above is first pure. And then he goes on with the other seven. So the preeminent uh, example or attribute of the school of heavenly wisdom is it's pure. That is A number one. He uses the word protos there. Preeminent. It's the first. And really you might say the rest all flow out of this one. That to graduate from the school of heavenly wisdom, to attend God's teaching, is to be pure. That's the outcome. Oh, David said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. A pure, a clean heart is uncluttered by things like bitter jealousy. It's not uh, dirtied by selfish ambition because a pure heart recognizes it's not about me. You know, when you know the love of God for you, it is so overwhelming and so heart-filling that you really don't need anything else. It's nice, it's wonderful to enjoy the, the love of fellowship and brotherly love among people, but when you know the agape of God... It changes everything and it purifies the heart. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now, again, the next seven attributes are specific dimensions of this pureness, of this purity. Purity is is the big picture, and the rest of these flow from it, and that's very important, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Second word is peaceable. Peaceable. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's the adjective form of peace, and what it tells us is that in this school, in the school of heavenly wisdom, peace is in play. Peace is in play. You know that it's heavenly wisdom when there's peace. When the heart is still, when there's a calm about it. It's a good way of of determining, is this heavenly or or not? Well, have a great peace about that. Now, I'm not talking about self-deception, because I've heard people say, well, I had a peace about it. Yeah, the peace is you just stop thinking. (laughs) You're not striving, you're not processing anymore. No, the peace that comes from God, the peace that surpasses all comprehension, that guards your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus, that kind of peace is in play where there is heavenly wisdom. Speaking of that wisdom, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3.19, Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. 
her paths. All right, quick side note. If you read through Proverbs, Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman. Speaks of wisdom in the feminine. Which can cause a wife to look at her husband and go, well, yeah, I mean, isn't that obvious? (laughs) The wisdom's right here. It's interesting to me in the Scriptures that Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman, but then ultimately we see wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ, a man. So I think what the Bible is getting at there is wisdom is for men and women who would listen to Jesus Christ. Because He embodies wisdom. All wisdom, the Bible tells us, is in Christ. So the personification thing is just the way that that Solomon is writing poetically and he says her ways, that is the ways of wisdom, are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. This is a wisdom that's restful, not stressful. It's peaceful, not pressured. Where strife and anxiety and rushing and fear, where those things are, that's not heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is peaceful. Isn't it ironic that here in the information age, where knowledge is just a swipe away, anxiety disorders are skyrocketing, especially among young people. Now you can look at the statistics and we could talk about those, but from personal experience, and Jake and I have had this conversation many times, the amount of years that I spent in youth ministry, 15 years in youth ministry in the 80s and the 90s, and I did not see teenagers and young adults experiencing the kind of anxiety that they experience today. I didn't see it. I'm telling you, it just wasn't there. Not like it is now. Where, where teenagers are just wrapped up and stressed out and, and the types of things that are being dealt with, what Jake has to deal with in student ministry now is completely different than it was. And much of it, yeah, it has to do with our cell phones and, and the internet and the information and all this constant influx of information and it's never enough and you've got to have more and you're, there's no keeping up and of course social media makes it even worse because everything is just this constant barrage. There's no peace in that. Just stress. Just anxiety. Information and knowledge does not translate to peace. Well, I just got to get more information. Well, then you're going to be more stressed out. You see, even in our study through the Scriptures, this is not about gaining more information. It's, as I said earlier, about gaining a deeper relationship with Jesus. That brings peace. Head knowledge doesn't do it. Godly wisdom always brings peace. And if we're really following Jesus, enrolled in this school of heavenly wisdom, we're going to actually walk differently. We're going to be a more peaceful-looking people. 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in this world, and especially toward you. Those who live by grace, by heavenly wisdom, look completely different than those who are basing their life on wisdom from the school of hard knocks. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why is that? Because they look like their father, who also happens to be the founder of the school of wisdom. It's also wisdom that is not only first pure, then peaceable, but it's gentle. And there's that word again, gentle. 
We already looked at it. It's that quiet strength. Where does quiet strength come from in the life of a follower of Jesus? It comes from the fact that I have nothing to prove. I know Jesus. And He has proven me righteous. So I'm not straining and striving. I'm not worried about this. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And what else does the Bible tell us but that the joy of the Lord is our strength. His strength is joy, and in it comes that gentleness that we're talking about. The next word is reasonable. I like this. The person who is attending to the school of heavenly wisdom is a reasonable person. The translation of that word is willing to yield or to defer. It's the person who's open-minded. That's not always easy. That requires a little bit of prayer. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So, reasonable wisdom, recognizing that there's more going on than maybe what I see right now. That maybe, though I consider myself a godly man, and spiritual, and religious, and filled with understanding. After all, I have taught the Scriptures now for 15 years... Straight through, have I not proven myself to be a wise man? Therefore, why do I need to be surrounded with a bunch of idiots? (laughs) Therefore, I am doing away with our shepherds. Can you even imagine that mentality? Have you seen it? You say yes quickly. I hope not in me. The average size of a church in America is about 75 to 80 people. And the reason for that is that the average church has a pastor who does everything. And, you know, without judging my fellow pastors out there, so much of that has to do with micromanaging. And I have to control everything and I have to do everything and I have to make sure everything takes place through my thinking because I'm the one in charge here. I'm the one responsible. And you know what? I have to go into shepherds meetings and defer. And my fellow shepherds know it's not always easy for me. You know, to sit down and go, all right, this is what I wanted to do, and you all are completely opposed. (laughs) But wisdom from above is reasonable. It is willing to yield. And it looks around the room. And this is the same for all of us. It it looks at brothers and sisters in Christ and says, I I was sure this was the way to go, but, but they're not seeing it that way. Hmm. I wonder why. Lord, give me discernment here. Are they right? Now, Now, this reasonableness, this willing to yield, doesn't mean you just cave in. Sometimes you have to take a moral stance, or sometimes there is a position that you have to say, this is what it is, and I know it is, because I have peace, and in the spirit of gentleness, the spirit of wisdom, I know that this is true. But there's so much by way of wisdom, we would do well to listen to those God has placed in our lives. Specifically those who are speaking by the Spirit of Christ. Those who know Jesus. So that kind of wisdom, it's just reasonable. And I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the poor in spirit are going to be surrounded in the kingdom 
by others. So this wisdom is reasonable. It's also full of mercy. Which, you know, mercy is not giving the judgment that others deserve. So this is the kind of wisdom that looks at those around you and says, Oh man, he deserves a kick in the head. She deserves to be really raked over the coals for what she did. Well, that may be true. That may be what he or she deserves. But if you have a wisdom that's full of mercy, that's not what you're going to give. It's a completely different thing. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 7, for they shall receive mercy. Again, that's a tough one in the human heart that tends to cry for justice. I want you to make this right. They wronged me, and I want to make it right by seeing them wronged. That's earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. But heavenly wisdom understands what Yaakov already said back in chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. And so this wisdom is full of mercy. It's also full of good fruits. Good fruits. Jesus said in Luke 7.35, Wisdom is vindicated by her children. It's one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. But it's one of those things that when he says it, you kind of go, well, that's weird. And you move on to the next verse because you don't know what that means. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. Hey, he's just saying that true wisdom produces offspring. True wisdom is going to be seen in the fruit that it produces. And this wisdom, heavenly wisdom, produces good fruit. All wisdom produces fruit. You know that. Whether it's school of hard knocks or school of heavenly wisdom, all wisdom produces fruit. The question is, is it good fruit? Does It's godly wisdom producing good fruit, good offspring, good children. Worldly wisdom produces bad seeds. And I'm not actually applying that to parenting. And, and I need to make this point, it's very serious, that I've seen the most godly, wise, loving, gentle, peaceable, reasonable Parents have children who went off the rails. Why is that? What did they do wrong? Well, they may have done nothing wrong. The children may have chosen to go to the school of hard knocks. The children may have chosen to go a different route because every one of us have that ultimate opportunity to choose where are we going to go to school? Who are we going to attend to? What are we going to listen to? Well, this wisdom is full of good fruits. Wisdom from above always is, always yields good results. It's also, he says, unwavering, which means literally it's undivided, specifically in loyalty to God. This wisdom doesn't waver. This wisdom, wisdom trusts in the Lord. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. But wisdom that's from above doesn't waver. Doesn't bounce back and forth between various opinions. Isn't hopping on one foot. Wisdom from above is unwavering in its devotion to God. And you might say, oh man, that counts me out because I waver all the time. We'll hold that thought and we'll, and we'll address that in just a second here. But unwavering, full of good fruits, all this goes hand in hand with the last aspect, which is without hypocrisy, which literally translated sincere. 
This wisdom from above is sincere. Paul said in Philippians 1.9, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So wisdom from above doesn't develop selfish motives or buried bitter roots. It's just walking in the light with all sincerity. It it develops in us the ability to sit down with one another and say, hey, here's where I'm at. This is what I'm feeling or thinking. It's being real. It's one of the things that I love about genuine Christianity is that it's genuine. There is no pretense. There's no playing games. There's no putting on religious masks. We just, you know, if I have failed, I can say I failed because I've already been forgiven. If I've wronged you, then I can address that and I can seek forgiveness because I've already been forgiven by God. If you've wronged me, I can forgive you. We can deal with life as it is, walking in the light as He is in the light, and so we will have fellowship with one another, 1 John 1 7. Right? Walk in the light. It's sincerity. And godly wisdom develops that. You know, this is an amazing filter. Verse 17 is, is a filter that you can look at anytime, go right here, to determine if the wisdom or counsel that you're getting from another person is godly or not. Does it fit these things? Is it pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy? What a marvelous way to determine if the wisdom is from above or from below. If it's heavenly or earthly, godly or demonic, just go right to James 3.17, Yaakov, and you can discover this wisdom. But get this. There's something of far greater value here than simply determining the source of wise counsel. And it's what we see in verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now I know some of your translations, in fact the NASB says, and the seed whose fruit of righteousness, or whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace. That, that alters what's really said there. The, the literal translation, if you're just taking it straight through the Greek, the word by word translation is, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace. That's the actual translation. Seed is not in the language. And that's important because righteousness isn't the thing that the seed bears. It's not that a seed is planted and righteousness comes up. No, righteousness itself is filled with all of these seeds. So righteousness produces this. This fruit, righteousness, get this, righteousness itself seeds the whole field. Listen to the verse again. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's that? Why can't I think of it right now? What's what's that that, uh, fruit? It's reddish on the outside and it's filled with seeds and the seeds have the little pomegranate. Thank you. (laughs) All right. The pomegranate. I remember the very first time when I was a kid... A friend brought a pomegranate to school, pulled it out of his sack lunch. I'm like, what's that? You know, I'd never seen one before. And he cracked it open, and I looked inside. I couldn't believe it. It was like a treasure trove of sweetness. And that's what we're talking about. It's a beautiful picture of righteousness. Just filled with all of these sweet seeds. 
And so righteousness itself, sown into the field, produces this kind of godly wisdom. And it brings us ultimately to the underlying purpose of heavenly wisdom. Listen, it is not just for personal enrichment. I don't go to the school of heavenly wisdom so that I can be wise. If I want to be wise in and of myself, go to the school of hard knocks. That's where you're going to learn to be wise in and of yourself and to feel proficient and intellectual and developed in your education. Go to the school of hard knocks. Learn from this world. You go to the school of heavenly wisdom for the sake of the body, for the fellowship of believers, so that you can be used of God to spread the fruit of righteousness, which indeed itself seeds this heavenly wisdom. We attend together the school of heavenly wisdom so that we, again, together, might be a pure and spotless bride. It's for all of us. It's for us to walk together. Again, Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, I betrothed you as one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Man, earthly, natural, demonic wisdom sows bitterness and selfish discord. It divides. But wisdom from above sows righteousness right back into the body of Christ. So that, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, we might be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. That is purified in the school of heavenly wisdom. That's the point of all of this. Now you might say, Okay, how do I apply? I'd like to go to that school. It's very simple. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. All you got to do is ask. Jesus, will you be my Lord and my Savior? All you got to do is ask. Jesus said in Luke 11.13, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask Him. That's how you apply to this school. Ask and then attend. Verse 6 says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And again you might say, Oh no, I doubt sometimes. I'm driven and tossed sometimes. Listen, He's not saying you won't have questions. You know, a good student in the school of heavenly wisdom is going to raise his hand from time to time. He's going to ask questions. What he's saying is this. This is the bottom line. We'll end on this thought. If you graduate from the school of hard knocks, you will gain cleverness and worldly wisdom and experience, but you will be entirely on your own. If... You graduate from the school of heavenly wisdom, the founder goes with you. You never leave the school. He is always there, as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. That's not a new agey thing. Oh, I've got the Christ mind now. You know? No. What that means is, if I have the mind of Christ, you know how I have the mind of Christ? <laughs> 
He's there. He's here. He's with me. He is immediate. In whom, Colossians 2.3, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is Jesus Himself. Wise men and sages and magi, they come to Jesus. And He never leaves. And that is the wisdom that He offers us. His own self. And Father, that's the wisdom that I desire to attain to, that we all do this morning. The wisdom that is Jesus. And, and even having this defined and described for us and laid out in such uh, specific terminology by your servant Jacob, Lord, I, I am just thankful that it brings us back to and points again to Jesus. As we began earlier, that's what all of this is about. You are what all of this is about, Lord. And so we invite your presence into our lives. And Father, we invite you to deal with our doubts and to deal with our, our misgivings and and to help us in our understanding. We invite You, Lord, through Your Word and by Your Spirit to teach us spiritual truth and to help us to learn to discern from that which is earthly and natural and demonic to that which is heavenly and godly and spiritual. Lord, that's what we desire and we ask You for it now. We ask and we attain to Your wisdom in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're lacking in this wisdom, if you desire Jesus, why don't you come and just ask Him. If you've never given your life to Jesus, there's never been a better time than right now to come to Him. Let's stand and sing together.